Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, we are in the middle of a series and on our mission statement. We started it a couple of weeks ago, bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. And we've been camped out here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 on this basic statement that really determines what we do as a church, the direction that we go. And it's so vital in all of the ways that we make decisions around here. We've looked at bringing and we've looked at gospel restoration. And this morning we're going to be focusing in on people's deepest needs. Now listen, if I were having a conversation with you this morning in the privacy of my office, and I were to ask you a simple question, what, based upon how you look at your life right now, what would you identify as your deepest need? What would you say? I bet some of you would probably say my marriage. My marriage is my deepest need. We are in trouble or we are on you know, autopilot and our marriage needs reinvigorating. Maybe some of you would say my children. Uh, some of them have grown and perhaps they're not following the Lord and this is a big burden on your heart or you're raising little ones and at times you really wonder, do you know, have any clue what you're doing at all? And especially as they become teenagers, I mean, the book goes out the, and then you might say, my children are my deepest need or perhaps it's a physical illness or it's a job situation or it might be an addiction to a substance or to pornography or some other some other thing that is in your life. I bet we would go around the room, if we were in that private setting, we would probably all identify different things that are unique to us and our deepest need. Now next week, Ben is going to be taking the broken world portion. You know, bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs and our broken world. And with our broken world, he's going to dig into the gospel and how the gospel restores and addresses the many things that we see as our deepest needs, especially those of us who already follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But when we think about our mission statement, I want us to all be working off the same page. This is why we're doing this series of messages. <clears throat> and fundamental to our mission statement and this understanding of people's deepest needs is that the first, the greatest deep need, the deepest need of every person, us included, and our people in our community and the world, the first and greatest, deepest need of every person is reconciliation with God. Almost 600,000 people in Brevard County, almost 6 million people in Central Florida, and 6 billion people around the world are alienated from God and need to be reconciled with their Creator. So this morning, 
I want us to better understand the beautiful truth of reconciliation that Paul brings out in this passage. Now, some of us here uh, this morning, we need to understand this truth for the first time. And as Paul encourages in verse 20, we need to be reconciled to God. For some of us here this morning, that's where it starts. We've never been reconciled to God. And I hope this morning you will better understand reconciliation and you will find in your heart a burning desire to be reconciled to God. Others of us, we have already been reconciled to God. But the more we appreciate the majesty of this truth, the, the, the better ambassadors of gospel restoration we become. So this passage and this concept of reconciliation, it's for those who already follow Jesus and it's for those who need to follow Jesus. So let's jump right in. There's several applications to make. The first is the most basic, the most foundational truth when it comes to reconciliation as in our passage. God has done all the work and receives all the glory for our reconciliation. Paul writes in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from whom? God. God. God has done all the work. He receives the glory. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Hey, what is reconciliation? What does that word mean? Right? The New Testament, our English comes from the language that the letters were written in, the common Greek language of the day. Uh, common Greek 2,000 years ago was to the Western world and to the Mediterranean world what English is today to that same portion of the world. It was the common language. And Paul wrote in Greek, and the underlying Greek word for reconciliation is katalage, and it means the reestablishment of a relationship that has been interrupted or broken. It is a severed relationship that has been restored. The reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. That's what reconciliation is defined as. And so when it relates to us, it's talking about our relationship with God and how our relationship with God was broken in the fall. Sin, through the entry of sin, we are born enemies of God, rebelling against him, worshipers of ourselves, just as Adam worshiped himself and rebelled against God at, after eating that forbidden fruit. So, normally, when we think about a severed relationship, our relationship with God has been broken by sin, and when we think about reconciliation needing to take place between parties who have had a breach in the relationship, the onus of reconciliation falls on the person who offends, right? So, for example, if I'm a knucklehead, not that I'm ever a knucklehead, but if I'm a knucklehead and I say something or I do something that hurts Catherine, that offends her, that sins against her, where does the onus of reconciliation and makeup rest? With her or me? Come on, you can say it. With her or me? Yeah, exactly. You've always wanted to say that in a sermon, right? Uh, exactly. The onus rests upon the person 
who has done the offending. They're supposed to be the ones who do the reconciling. But folks, the issue is, in our natural state, born as humans, we will never, ever seek reconciliation with God. Our sin nature necessitates that reconciliation be initiated and carried out by God. We are incapable of approaching God and seeking reconciliation with Him. We're born this way. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is God's verdict on every human being who is born into this world. This is you and I. This is how we are. We are dead in sin. And dead people do not have the ability to reconcile themselves with God. In fact, dead people and people who are dead in sin don't even desire to be reconciled with God and at peace with God. People who are dead in their trespasses and sin love self-worship. Rebellion against God is the natural state of things. So let's be clear. We do not establish or we do not reestablish our broken relationship with God. We do not make peace with God. We do not make things right with God. We should, but we don't. And why don't we? Because we can't. We can't do it. And so this is why God as you look at this passage of Scripture, reconciliation is mentioned five times. And in four of these occasions, God is the subject and we are the object of reconciliation. God makes peace with us. God pursues us and He changes our hearts and He gives us the desire so that we want to be restored to Him and we want to be at peace with Him. God does all of this because we cannot do it for ourselves. We do not even want to do it for ourselves in our natural state. You know, this weekend, a new movie came out. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. As somebody who grew up in the 70s and 80s, I have to see it, right? I'm talking about what? Yeah, exactly, Eric. Got Bohemian Rhapsody. Got to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Talking about you know, one of the best bands. I mean, just phenomenal. I grew up uh, listening uh, to Queen, right? And in this story of Freddie Mercury and, and this band, and the climactic point in the movie is when they performed at Live Aid in July of 1985. How many of you remember Live Aid? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have no clue what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, of course. A lot of you because you're too young. So let me just tell you what it is, okay? And now I'm really feeling old. Um, 
So Libe, what was happening back in the early 80s and in the mid 80s is there was a horrible famine in Africa, especially Ethiopia. And so every night when we would turn on our TVs, um, we were presented with pictures of, of Ethiopian children, and they just looked like little stick figures. You know, maybe some of y'all remember what I'm talking about. And their bellies would be bloated, and, and there were dead bodies. You see dead bodies on the side of the road where there was just a starvation was taking place in Ethiopia. And it became a worldwide scandal about how bad it was. And so in July of 1985, uh, all the great uh, rock and pop musicians of Europe got together and all the ones in America got together and on one night they did a simultaneous concert. In England and Wembley Stadium there were like 75,000 people and in a JFK Stadium in Philadelphia there was like 110,000 and they broadcast this live simultaneous event around the world. On that evening 1.4 or 1.9 I can't remember but 40% of the world's population saw this concert. It make, making it the greatest concert in the history of humanity, okay? And at that concert, the band that became the greatest band on that night in that concert that stole the show was Queen. It was an incredible, incredible event. And so, of course, the movie, it, it climaxes with, you know, Live Aid. But, what the movie does not do is go back in time some. You see, this, this aid to Africa actually began back in January of 1985 when Michael Jackson, I won't do the moonwalk for you, and Lionel Richie, they wrote a song. And all the music, all the money from that song, nowadays $141 million, all the money was donated to the, the relief. Of the, the, of the starving uh, people of Ethiopia. They gathered together all these great musicians, everybody from Willie Nelson and Kenny Rogers on the country spectrum to Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder, and I'm saying names that some of you are looking at me like, huh? But you know, they were big at that time. And they all sang this song. Remember this song? Here you go. I heard a little Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton in there, right? Okay, you just, uh, that was a huge song. Yeah, thank you. Okay, give me the light. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, just so you know, that song is going to be stuck in your head the rest of the day. It became a huge hit, right? And so at Live Aid, you know, fast forward seven months later at Live Aid, uh, you know, they, they, they all get up on stage and they sing this song, unifying you know, the world, the artist. You know, we are the world. We are the children. There's a choice that we're making. We're saving our own lives through our generosity. Well, after the concert, the, the artists go backstage. They're being, they, they have a sit-down press conference. And at the press conference, one of the reporters asked Bob Dylan, God bless Bob Dylan. They asked Bob Dylan what he thought about that, that climactic moment, singing that song and everything else. And Bob Dylan said, I really am uncomfortable singing that song. I don't like it at all. That kind of put a damper on the press conference. And so people, of course, the reporters ask a follow-up question. What, what do you mean? Why are you uncomfortable singing the song? And he said this. He said, I'll tell you why. And listen to what he says. Because man cannot save himself. Exactly. Exactly. We're not saving our own lives. Exactly, Bob Dylan. 
Because man cannot save himself or reconcile himself to God. God pursued us. He brought about reconciliation through Jesus Christ. Thus, God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit and fame for our reconciliation. Not us, not a bit. God gets it all because he did it all. Now, how did he bring this about through Christ? Well, this we also see in verse 19 and 21. He brings it about at Calvary. Jesus standing in our place so that we could be reconciled with God and declared righteous by Him. He says in verse 19, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Drop down to verse 21, kind of the penultimate verse in this passage. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we consider this reconciliation that God brings about, you know, it brings up some questions. Why on earth was God willing to lay aside his anger and wrath towards our sin and instead pursue reconciliation? Why was he willing to do that? And, and how is it possible that he could make peace with us when our sins so greatly offend his holiness and his perfect justice? How could he not count our trespasses against us. How's this possible? Because remember, folks, when Adam fell, we all fell. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And the penalty of sin is death and separation from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And this death is not just physical death. The wages of sin, God's holiness and justice is so perfect and so high that the least amount of sin, the verdict is eternal separation from God. So how? Is it possible that God could reconcile us when we are sinners in such deep need of reconciliation because of our sin? Well, God's wrath and anger towards our sin, God's perfect justice and the demands of His holiness and perfect justice, they were satisfied by Christ through His death. And his resurrection. That's the only way it could happen. And as to why he did it, for God so loved the world. You know, the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Notice what he says there in verse 22, right? He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. Understand that reconciliation required something. It required that God take on human flesh. 
Become a man, 100% man. And in another month, we'll begin celebrating Advent. And at Advent, we use a phrase or term, incarnation. And that incarnation means that God, and Jesus Christ, that God took on human flesh and he walked among us. He was absolutely, perfectly, 100% God and divine while at the same time being absolutely perfect, 100% man. And this is an important distinction. Jesus had to be 100% God and 100% man. And this is why the reconciliation is so important. This is why Paul calls Jesus the second Adam. That's an important title. What's he getting at there when he says the second Adam? Well, you remember who the first Adam was, right? He was the the first guy, the first man in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and we read of him and how in the garden, uh, Adam, representing all of us, he rebels against God. We referred to it earlier in the message. And by his rebellion against God, he brings sin into the world. Why is this the case? Because God, when he created Adam, excuse me, he, he established with Adam and with all of Adam's ancestry, a covenant. You read it in Genesis chapter 2. It's known as the covenant of works. And he says to Adam in the garden, listen, Adam, you may eat of everything here in the garden. I want you to till the garden. I want you to steward the earth. I want you to procreate and fill the earth with little Adams and Eves. And, and he gave him these things. And then he said, but do not do this. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so this is called the covenant of works because God said, Adam, if you do what I have told you to do and don't do what I've told you not to do, you shall live. You will have eternal life. So based upon what Adam did, his works, there would be a consequence, eternal life or separation from God and death. This is known as the covenant of works. And when Adam violated the covenant of works, sin comes into the world, and since that point in time, you and I are born, and what do we do? Do we obey or do we disobey? We disobey. And so under the terms of the covenant of works, which all of humanity is born under, every one of us earns and deserves death, separation from God. Because as humans, we have simply reenacted, all of us, what that first Adam has done because of our sin nature. And we are born under that covenant of works. Then comes Jesus, the second Adam. What our passage points out, he who knew no, what? Sin. The perfect man is perfect because he perfectly obeys the covenant of works. He obeys every law of God. His will and his pleasure is to do the Father's will. He doesn't disappoint. He doesn't disobey. He doesn't rebel. He is perfectly in harmony with the heavenly Father, and he obeys the covenant of works. And so what does he get for that? Death. Wait a second. You're supposed to have life. You're not supposed to have to die if you obey the covenant of works. And yet Jesus, as the second Adam, perfectly obeys the covenant of works, and then he dies. Why? Because he pays the penalty 
of our sin on the cross. He pays the penalty for our disobedience to the covenant of works. For the soul that sins, it shall what? Die. And so Jesus, as that second Adam, perfectly fulfilling humanity's responsibility to the covenant of works, instead puts himself on the cross in our place. And just as that first Adam represented us, this second Adam represented us, and God puts upon him the penalty of our sins, and he pays for those sins. He satisfies the terms of the covenant of works for each and every one of us who are God's children. It's vitally important that he be 100% man and 100% God, because if he's not 100% God, he cannot satisfy the wrath of God. It takes God to satisfy the wrath of God. And it takes a man to fulfill the human responsibilities of the covenant of works. The great evangelist George Whitfield, back in the 1700s, he preached to hundreds of thousands of people, part of the great awakening here in America, he preached this one time. He said, He, Jesus, was truly God and therefore could satisfy. He was truly man and therefore could obey and suffer in our stead. He was God and man in one person that God and man might be happy together again. I love that. Might be happy together again. God he gives us grace. You say, we're not under the covenant of works. We're under the covenant of grace. You're right. Because in that garden in Genesis, he turns to Adam and he says, all right, this is what's going to happen. And he puts in place the plan of redemption that is all about God's grace. He predicts the coming of a Messiah he establishes covenants throughout the Old Testament, all of which are aspects and, and revelations of God's gracious interaction with humanity through redemption. And God, He gives us grace by taking the life and the death of this second Adam and counting it as if it is our life. Unbelievable grace. We don't deserve that at all. But for his children, God looks at us, to those of us who are in Christ, and the life that he sees is not our life of sin and trespass, but the life of perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. He sees not a fallen sinner, but a righteous son and holy daughter. God put our sin on the cross of Jesus and at that point, he declared his justice towards our sins satisfied when Christ died for them in our place. God takes the righteousness of Christ, verse 20 tells us, and he puts it in our place. He applies it to us, declaring us no longer unrighteous, but righteous. No longer enemies, but sons and daughters who have been reconciled with him. Folks, we live under the covenant of works and grace at the same time. But the covenant of grace is the covenant of grace because God graciously counts the perfect obedience of Jesus to the covenant of works 
as if we had actually obeyed it ourselves, that we had lived that perfect life. For us to be reconciled to God, a great swap has to take place. And that's what verse 20 is getting at. For us to be reconciled to God, a great swap has to take place. My sin has to be swapped for Christ's righteousness. My disobedience has to be swapped for Christ's obedience. My rebellion and self-worship has to be swapped for Jesus' love and loyalty to God the Father. And this brings us to the maybe the most important and final application from the passage. This great swap, this great swap which God brought about, we receive by faith. We don't earn it. This great swap which God brings about, we do not earn, but we receive it by faith. What does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And now he says in this last sentence, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. A few moments ago, I told you when, when Paul uses reconciliation and he links it to God, when God is the subject, he uses the active voice. But here in verse 20, the only example where humans are the subject, be reconciled to God. You, be reconciled to God. Sorry to give you a grammar lesson, all right? But when humans are the subject, Paul switches to the passive voice relative to reconciliation. Why the switch? Why does he go from active voice to passive voice? The reason why? Reconciliation is the work of who? God. He instigates it. He creates it. He brings it about. What do we do? We receive it. We receive reconciliation. And by receiving reconciliation, folks, we receive peace with God. The broken relationship that has been interrupted by sin is perfectly restored. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so the important question is, how do we receive it? It's not by good works. You may have come into this church this morning sensing a deep need in your life. Things are broken. Things are out of balance. Things are messed up. And you're looking for answers. I have news for you. You can be reconciled to God, but it doesn't happen by you first fixing yourself and addressing the problems in your life reforming yourself and getting straightened out, and then you can be reconciled to God. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen by our good works. It doesn't happen by us reforming ourselves. It doesn't happen by us being involved in religious activity. We receive reconciliation by faith, by trusting 
that the good Lord Jesus Christ is so precious and so powerful that when he died on the cross for our sins, that that was enough to satisfy God's just demands. It's by trusting that as God tells us, if you will simply believe, if you will receive my son as I present him to you as your Lord, he will be your savior. Your sins are forgiven. We are reconciled. No longer are you an enemy. You are a son and a daughter. This morning, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. And this meal is all about what Jesus did on the cross to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. Verse 20 says, Be reconciled to God. Do you have a confidence in your soul that this deepest need that every one of us has has been met? Do you have a confidence in your heart that you've been reconciled to God because there is a moment where you understood your need of forgiveness and you turned to Jesus in faith and you received him as your savior. You admitted, I can never be good enough to obey that. I can never be good enough to please God. I'm gonna trust Jesus instead and follow him. Do you have that confidence in your heart this morning? If you don't, this meal is meant to encourage you to even in your seat as others of us are taking this meal to say a simple prayer and to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. The great thing about God is He sees the intent of, a, of the heart. It's not really the magic of our words. You can just simply bow your head and say, Lord, I'm a mess. I want my sins forgiven. I want to follow you and be reconciled to God. I think you really, you can just bow your head and say, oh God, help! And he gets it. So if you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, I would encourage you, be reconciled to God. And for those of you who have been reconciled, this meal is for you. This meal is a meal for those who are following Jesus Christ, who know him as Lord and Savior. I want to invite everyone here this morning to partake of the Lord's Supper. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're in good standing with at least a Bible-believing church somewhere, either our church or somewhere else. If you have children and they, maybe they've professed faith, but they haven't yet been examined and, and come and talk to me or one of the elders, I would ask you to use this as a teachable moment for your children until that step is taken. But if you, your children have been baptized or they have uh, had their salvation verified either at our church or another, they're welcome to take it with us. Uh, what does the Bible tell us? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, 
Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Everyone is welcome here to take the Lord's Supper who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but that warning in the passage should be taken seriously. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes as the musicians take their place and the servers take their place. And let's spend a few moments in quiet prayer. You know, before we come to a meal in our home, we make sure that we're clean. We wash our hands, and I want to encourage you to do the same spiritually. Come into a time of prayer. Confess any sin that may be in your life. Let's bow our heads and pray silently together.